For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Excuse me. This is really distracting. Maybe that's okay. Let's go back to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. May God bless to us the reading of his word. If you don't mind, let's pray together for just a moment. Lord Jesus, you are the shepherd of your church, of these two churches, and you have led us along to this point. We have sought to follow your shepherding voice the way that you have wanted us to go. And so none of us are here today by accident or mistake. You, you want each of us here. And so I pray that in your great and sovereign love, that you would speak to us today through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Do that in each of our minds and hearts, which we need. And I pray these things in faith. In your name, Jesus. Amen. We are going to consider these verses today. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 19. And this passage is about losing and finding, which ultimately is what our sojourn of faith is really all about, losing and finding. If we have been alive any length of time, we have found that to be the normal course of life, losing and finding. Loss is really, really hard, particularly whenever we lose things which we bank on, which we trust in, which give us comfort. I was reading a really good book on leadership this past week, and it made a pretty profound but honestly pretty obvious statement, and that is this. All change involves loss. 
Both of our congregations right now are considering significant change. And most of us, in one way or another, are a little bit uncomfortable. We do things a little differently from one another in these two congregations. Our music is a little different from one another. The way we structure our services is a little different from one another. The way we structure some of our ministries to families looks a little bit different from each other. The way that we have traditionally practiced some of our uh, approaches to leadership look a little bit different. And as the elders have been meeting together and considering what it would look like for us to come together as one body, it has been clear that both congregations are going to have to undergo some change in one way or another. And ultimately, change involves loss. You've experienced this if you are an empty nester. Life changed when your last kid finally left. For some of you, it was really, really hard. Because for decades, the main thing you talked about were your kids. On the occasions, perhaps, when you got out for a date... You talked about your kids. Whenever you were with your friends, you talked about your kids. They, they were sort of the thing around which your marriage orbited. But then they leave, and life changes. Now, if you have led your marriage relatively well, and you know who you are to be as a husband and wife, which represents the relationship between Christ and His church, you can weather that change. But it's a mournful change. I remember the day that my parents dropped me off for college. They take me down about seven hours away. My mom was allowed to go into my room and make my bed. That was very important to her, to make my bed in my dorm room the first time. Um, it was really important to my dad to get there first. My dad's the kind of guy that unless you're an hour early, you're late. So we got to the dorm like two days early because he was very concerned that I get the right bed and the right drawers and the right closet and all that kind of stuff. So finally, it was getting a little uncomfortable, right? I'm 18 years old. I want to be left alone. So finally, they pulled away. Um, this was before cell phones were uh, available or certainly in vogue. But I had a phone in my room. And my dad called me like an hour and a half on their trip back north to Ohio. And he said, you've got to talk to your mom. She's losing her mind. <laughs> she was crying her eyes out in the car. I'm the third son, so often the third son's kind of the forgotten son. I'm a relatively emotionally uh, intuitive person, so I was always relatively intuitive with my mom. So we were close. And it was really, really hard for her to, to lose me to, uh, to college. In fact, to flash back a little bit, she started crying the last day of my junior year of high school. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. To this day, when I call my mom, and, and I've been out of the house a long time now. To this day, when I call my mom and I say goodbye to her, she cries still every time I say goodbye it was really hard for her to undergo the change of losing her kids. Now, my mom is proud. I have three brothers. She's proud of her four sons. 
She loves her grandchildren. She, she loves to see what God has done in our lives. She wouldn't trade that for the world. But change is difficult. One of the great challenges for the elders here as we propose to you what this change will look like is to do two things simultaneously. To say on the one hand, change involves loss. And to look at what that loss is, and if necessary, to weep over it, even mourn over it. The other challenge at the same time, however, is to say that the loss is worth it, the change is worth it because of what we will gain together. So let's look at the first for just a moment. What, what could we lose? What might we lose? What will we lose if we continue forward with this merger? We will lose some comfort. One of the things that has become clear as we have interacted with our folks in our church is that, that it's a little uncomfortable to come into an environment where things are done differently. Our folks know when they come on a particular Sunday what it's going to be like. When we come here, it's, it's a little bit different. A couple of people have said to our elders along the way, we like the way things are. Does that sound familiar to those of you who are members here at Berlin? You like the way things are. Change will come about for you denominationally, relationally. And I think it would be unwise for us to dismiss that, to brush it aside as though it doesn't matter. Life is nothing if it is not at intervals, uncomfortable. But if we believe that God is all-powerful, all-wise, and all-good, He never, ever puts us through an uncomfortable season that does not result in something better. If we look at the discomfort of our life that God providentially, which means by His design, purposefully, deliberately brings about, then we have a very low view of Him if we do not think that what's going to come on the backside is not just going to be okay, but better. It does us well to look at what we may lose. We, we are going to lose the comfort that we have built and even fought for. And it's appropriate to mourn over what was. But I say to you, as one of your leaders, that what is in front of us, we believe, is so much better. More relationships. More capacity to disciple every generation in this church for the glory of Jesus. To take this collection of children and raise them up to not just be moral, to not just embrace the basic contours of Christianity, but to embrace Jesus as their all-surpassing treasure, and then to go out into the world, wherever that may be, and make much of Him. That is worth it. To reach this community all around us, which is dying without the truth, we believe, we collectively 
can do that better? Will we lose? If we're going to change, we're going to lose some things. And it's appropriate to be sad about that. But if we are to gain something far better, we can suffer the loss in faith knowing that what is coming is better. Doing what is comfortable is numbing. Doing what is comfortable is also attractive because we're used to it. Risk in a church merger is nothing if it's not risk. Risk is terrifying. My wife and I decided a number of years ago that we needed to find something to do together that did not involve talking about our kids. So we talked about tennis, we talked about golf, um, and eventually we landed on backpacking. So we've, we've learned to love doing this together. We have, we have taken a couple of trips together out into the Western Rockies that have been uh, challenging. My brothers and I have done something similar. I have three brothers, as I mentioned earlier. One of the things we love to do when we have larger family vacations is to climb some of the 14,000-plus foot mountains out in Colorado. So this is what we love to do as a family, backpacking, climbing, that kind of stuff. A few years ago, my, uh, two of my brothers and I decided to climb one of those 14,000-plus foot mountains outside of Breckenridge, Colorado. It's called Quandary Peak. It's called Quandary for a reason. If you're not careful, you can get yourself in, in quite a quandary. We did this in the winter, which makes the summit even harder. We got about 200 feet from the summit, and um, we ended up being in a very dangerous position. Every other step was either, this is a technical mountaineering term, either post-holing up to our, our waist, like where your leg goes all the way through the snow, or the next step, sometimes you'd be on sheer ice. And so we decided about 200 feet from the summit as the clouds began to roll in that we needed to go back down. We weren't going to make the summit. It was too dangerous. As I turned around, I was in front. As I turned around, I began to slip. And my youngest brother grabbed me and caught me. I do not know if I would have gone over the edge. It's possible because it was pretty sheer. But I, as even as I tell the story, I can remember that sort of bottoming out of my stomach feeling when I began to fall and had no control. Risk is like that. Doing dangerous things, things which cost us, it can feel like we've lost our equilibrium. Like we don't know where the slide is going to terminate. But that's what it often looks like to walk by faith. The Lord Jesus puts us through uncomfortable situations to make us remember we're not in control and to cause us to trust Him. The first thing that this text clarifies for us is that God's call for us to undergo change is a call to leave something behind, to suffer loss. And losing what we have known is hard and often frightening. If you know the story from Genesis chapter 12, this will be familiar to you, but in Genesis chapter 12, God calls, at this point his name was Abram, 
to leave his family in a city called Haran and to go to the land of promise, the land of Canaan. Now, initially, as we know from the end of Genesis chapter 11, Abram was from a city called Ur. It was a couple of hundred miles southeast of modern-day Baghdad, Iraq. Eventually, Abram's father took the family up to a city called Haran, or Haran, but did not go all the way toward Canaan. Eventually, God calls Abram to complete the journey and to go to Canaan. The passage that was read just a bit ago in Genesis chapter 15 is a bit after Abram ends up in Canaan. And the problem is the God who had promised him, Abram, that he would build through him a nation and bless the world, he didn't have any kids yet. And Abram's worried in Genesis chapter 15, how are you going to fulfill your promises to build a nation from me when there's not even one person yet that has come from us? God calls Abram out to view the night sky and promises him that he will indeed give him a son, even though it doesn't make logical sense, and calls him to look at the night sky, and if Abram is able to count those stars, he will be able to enumerate the many offspring physically, biologically, and spiritually that will come from him. And then God literally cuts a covenant. He takes some animals, cuts them in two, walks in and among the pieces, signifying that if he doesn't keep his end of the deal to keep these promises to Abraham, to build through him a nation, that the same thing that happened to those deceased animals would happen to God. Judgment and destruction would come down on the head of God. And, of course, we know that that is impossible because God cannot die. God unilaterally walked through the pieces to show that he would keep his end of the bargain, which was all of it. He would fulfill his promises. But think about what he has called Abram to do as we look in Hebrews chapter 11. As you see the end of verse 8, this is a really interesting phrase that the author uses. He says, and he went out, Abraham did, not knowing where he was going. He called Abraham to risk, to risk it all. Risk is terrifying. Risk is frightening. And notice that it was a transient life. It was impermanent. He never gave Abraham the fulfillment of the promises. They lived in tents, you notice in verse 9. To show that in this going out in faith, in this sojourning, that Abraham really was losing things and walking with risk the whole time. And as you go through the text, it's very clear as you get into verse 11 that God didn't fulfill the promises right away to bring them that heir. In fact, He made it very clear that there was nothing that they could do in their own power to bring the promises to pass. Notice in verse 13 that the text says that they were strangers and exiles. And if we're being honest, that's how we feel most of the time. We sang an old gospel hymn when I was a kid. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. You guys ever sung that before? 
Now, that's not perfectly correct. Alternately, this will be our home. Jesus will come back to this earth and recreate this planet, and we'll dwell with them for eternity. The idea is that in this present world, as it is groaning, as Rick said to us earlier during the children's sermon, we don't feel like we exactly belong. And one of the reasons that we don't feel like we exactly belong is that we are walking by faith in a God that most people around us don't accept. It's uncomfortable to live in such a world. God called Abram, later Abraham, out of what he knew, out of what was comfortable, initially in Ur, then in Haran, and then to go into Canaan, a place where he had done no reconnaissance. He couldn't look up the restaurants on Yelp. He couldn't Google map it. There were no reviews. He was entering into a place where where he thought it probably was dangerous. And if you read after Genesis chapters 12, you, you see that it actually was. Abraham was called to live in a dangerous place. And then later on in this text, in verses 17 through 18, you notice that God actually, after he fulfills the promise of giving him an heir, which was totally miraculous, that he put his finger, God's proverbial finger, right on the nerve center of Abraham's life. He actually fulfilled the promise to bring about the air, which would then result in the innumerable sands of the seashore and the stars in the sky. And then he puts his finger on it and says, give me that thing. Which means that even when you're older, God doesn't stop testing you. Do you ever think when you were a younger person that maybe by the time you reach 60 or at the latest maybe 70, life would just be smooth sailing? Do you ever feel that? And then you reach 60 or 70 and you think, God doesn't relent. He doesn't really let up. He keeps calling me to walk by faith. By this point, I wish I had it all under control. I got life insurance, I got health insurance, I got long-term care insurance, I provided for my kids' education, and yet God keeps putting His finger on the nerve center of my life and calling me to change, and I don't like it. If we're being honest, all of us are going through this at one time or another. Right now, if we're in a relative season of tranquility, guess what's coming around the bend? More call to change, more necessity of walking by faith, God continuing to put His finger on the nerve center of what we treasure, maybe even good things, but not the ultimate thing. Because you see, my friends, when it really comes down to it, our confidence is not in our insurance. Our confidence is not in our 401k. Our confidence is not in our well-trained kids. Our confidence is not in our intellect or our bank accounts or our friends or our community or our school system or anything else. And it's going to take a lifetime for God to reveal to us how prone we are to trust in other things other than Him ultimately. He won't let up. And on the one hand, that's super irritating, isn't it? But He doesn't do it because He's mean. 
He doesn't do it because he's a killjoy. He does it because he loves us. And he does it because he cares about his glory. And those two things, my friends, go together. God will display his glory here in this earth, particularly through his people. And as we learn to trust him and treasure him and bank on him, he looks the greatest. All of us have undergone change in one way or another. I remember when God directed my wife and I to come here to Columbus. She was pregnant with our first child, and it was time for me to find a job. I had been in the hallowed halls of seminary long enough, and I had to go put it into practice. So we were offered the opportunity to come plant a church here in Columbus, funded by my home church in Cincinnati. I may have told you, some of you, this story before. We drove up to Delaware County and drove around, saw what God was doing, and believed that a church that we desired to plant, a church that would uphold the authority of the Word of God, that would make disciples, that would build community, that a church like that was needed here in this community. I remember when we came back for our third trip, which is our actual moving trip, my family came up and helped us unload the truck into our apartment over in Westerville at that point, and they drove away, and we stood out in the parking lot and waved goodbye to them, and I was terrified. That sinking feeling in my stomach, falling off of a mountain almost, I felt that then too. I was terrified. And over the 14 years that we have lived here in southern Delaware County, I have felt that same feeling of terror and fright over and over and over again. Because God hasn't gotten me to this point where I feel like I've got it all figured out. And now he's putting our church and your church through this situation where we're undergoing change and even suffering loss, and he's holding out something in front of us that's going to cost us. It's going to cause risk. And he's putting his finger on the nerve center on our hearts, and he's saying, are you willing to trust me? Are you willing to leave something good behind for something better? God's call for us to undergo change is a call to leave something behind, to suffer, to suffer loss. And my friends, losing what we have known is hard and often frightening. But the beauty of this text is that God's call for us to change will never be to harm us, but to do us good. So what do we do? We must walk by faith, banking, resting in, banking upon his power, wisdom, and love or goodness. Notice in this text that the word faith is mentioned five times. Now, if you were to read the verses before, verses 1 through 7, or verses 20 down through the end of the chapter, you'll find other people mentioned than just Abraham's family. And the word faith is used over and over and over again. In fact, the book of Hebrews was written to Christians, probably from a Jewish background, that were being tempted to return, to revert back to law-keeping for the basis of their salvation. Or perhaps to, to take Jesus as a necessary component of their salvation and to add to it a bunch of law, particularly the laws from their youth, their their cultural heritage. The writer of Hebrews, who we 
are not sure exactly who it was, is saying to them, Jesus is all you need, and you must keep looking to Him. In fact, he'll begin in chapter 12 by saying in verse 2 that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. That's what a life of faith looks like for us. Leaving behind what we knew, what was comfortable, and looking to Jesus for things that we cannot fully see. Often, whenever God calls us to change, when He calls us to risk, it feels as though He's destroying us. It feels as though He's forgotten us and is arbitrarily just playing with us. You ever felt like that? But the truth of the matter is, as we read His Word, which is the foundation of our faith. And if we look back at our own stories, the opposite is true. Our emotions are real. And they often tell us that what Jesus is doing in our lives, providentially directing us toward, is going to wreck us. But as we read His Word, and as we rehearse our own stories, my friends, the opposite is true. God never calls us to change to harm us, but to do us the ultimate good. So therefore, we must walk by faith, banking upon His power, wisdom, and goodness. What God promises, He will fulfill. Not maybe, definitely. This means that you can trust Him at every turn. Abraham and Sarah had a temptation, much like Israel would later, to return back to where they came from because it was comfortable. But the text tells us that they looked forward. Look in verse 10. They looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Churches traditionally cathedrals, were organized with some of these thoughts in mind. In ancient cathedrals, they all faced east toward Jerusalem in anticipation that one day Jesus would return for His church and rescue them. So the church looks toward the east, waiting for Jesus to return to the earth and keep His promises to restore His people. But even architecturally, churches were built with this in mind. Your area that I'm looking at, looking westward, is called the narthex. We people who are not traditionally Presbyterian just call it a lobby. (laughs) But I tell you, narthex sounds way better, so the narthex, okay? Traditionally, as you came through the narthex of a church building, you came into what was called the nave. This is where most people sit during services. If you've ever grown up in maybe a more liturgical or hierarchical hierarchical denomination, maybe you went to one of those big cathedrals at one point. So it's called a nave. It comes from the Latin word novice, which is where we get our words like navy. And the reason for that is it's the idea of a ship. Novice means ship. And that, that cathedral portion where the people sit, the nave, if you look up at it, it looks like an inverted keel on a ship. 
So keels are put on the bottom of a ship to stabilize and then keep them, keep them uh, stable as they move forward. So if you go into an old cathedral and look up, it looks like an inverted ship upside down. That's, that's the novice, that's the nave. It was done on purpose. Church architects did that to make it look like an ark. And what was an ark if it was not a reminder that even in the midst of the storms all around us, that there was a safe place for God's people to go? God saved Noah and his family, keeping the image bearers alive so that he could restore his promises to the earth. When we come together as the people of God, we kind of come together into this protected ark-like place. What was also true about the architecture of old churches is that off to the sides, once you got through the nave, up near the altar, there are these things called transepts, and they stick out like this, north and south. And if you were to take a bird's eye view of those old cathedrals, they look like a cross. The architecture which points us to the safety and the salvation of the ark, or more importantly to Jesus, the Savior of all peoples everywhere, reminds us that the church has been put here on this earth to provide a refuge for God's covenant people in the midst of our exile and sojourn, in the midst of learning to walk with risk. But it's not just for us. And if nothing else, the primary reason that we are considering this idea of coming together is that those of us who know the safety of the nave, the ark, the safety of, of the people of Christ is to call other people into it who don't know. And the fundamental question for us is are we willing to leave behind what is comfortable and known for something that is better so that we can all grow in our understanding of and appreciation of Jesus. And so as we do so, we then go out on mission and bring other people into it. You see, my friends, we were not put here into Lewis Center to be two separate congregations who just get by and remain comfortable. We were put here into this community so that we could grow in our own estimation of Jesus, and then in so doing, we can go out and draw other people in. What we are leaving behind is going to cost us. We will suffer loss. But what is in front of us to know the glory of Jesus here in this community and to draw other people into it, into this place where they can know the salvation of God, the promises of Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, that's better. Abraham left and he went to a place where he didn't even know where he was going. He was a stranger and an exile, but God called him to something better, and he believed that God will fulfill his promises. In Romans chapter 4, we won't take time to turn here, but this passage, Paul teaches us that, that this same Abram, Abraham banked on God, and it was the very basis of his salvation. And in Galatians chapter 3, the same apostle says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. In other words, in Genesis 15, when Abraham went out and looked at the night sky, he saw the innumerable stars representing his offspring. But one of those, the brightest one, was a representation of Jesus the Messiah, who would be the Savior of all peoples everywhere. Which means that Abraham's going out was not just about him and Sarah. It was about you and me. 
We are sitting here together today in this nave-like idea, the saved people of Christ, because Abraham was willing to walk by faith. You see that? This was not just about him. Abraham never had a permanent home. Abraham was not around when Jerusalem was vanquished and settled. Abraham was not around when Jesus was born and crucified and resurrected. He didn't see it with his own eyes. And the future that God has for this collective church, some of you will not see it with your eyes. But we must walk by faith, believing that He will keep His promises, even if we don't fully see them here in this world. And ultimately, this reminds us that all the promises of Jesus are upside down. Jesus taught in Luke 17, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Kingdom ethics are upside down. In Mark chapter 8, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Upside down doesn't make sense. And in John chapter 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's the opposite of what is logical. My friends, if we are to continue this journey together, this sojourn of faith together, we're going to lose some things. And let me just be the first to say some of the things that I'm going to lose from having planted that church and coming into the unknown, the risk, make me uncomfortable. So me too. But for me and for you, God's call for us to undergo change is indeed a call to leave something behind. And losing what we have known is hard and often frightening. But, but, God's call for us to change will never be to harm us, but to do us good. So what do we do? We walk into the unknown. We take risk by faith, banking upon His power, wisdom, and goodness. Let me close with this. A couple of weeks ago, when we also met together for worship, Bev Lowe caught me in the back, so I don't mean to embarrass you, Bev, but here we go. <laughs> she, she caught me in the back, back by the soundboard, and she said, you know, um, some of the things that are going to be required for, for us to come together are going to cost me. And I won't go into the details of that. But she started, she started crying, which I love. I'm a crier too, so I connect with people who cry. <laughs> and, and she said, but it's worth it. It's worth it. And then she put her arm around me, and she hugged me, and she said, I already love you. And I responded the same. It was a very important moment for me. And I want to ask you if we can all do that. Even those of you who, who feel the discomfort to a greater degree, would you be willing to suffer loss, not just for something neutral, but for something far better? Where all of us can grow in our estimation of and treasuring of Jesus, and that we can draw other people into it so they can know the saving goodness of Jesus. Is that worth it? My friends, follow along. Let's take the risk. It is worth it. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, you call us to die. And we don't like that. But the call of your kingdom and the promises that your kingdom hold out to us, that's an upside-down ethic because when we die, we are resurrected. When we lose, we gain. So I pray that all of us, all of us who are undergoing discomfort and the, the, the knowledge, that the recognition that, that we're going to suffer some loss, that we would be willing to lay that down, to mourn it, to have fond recollection of what was for what can be. And I pray that we will take that risk. And I pray that you will prove to us that it was worth it so moms and dads in Lewis Center and Powell and Delaware and Westerville and Galena and the surrounding communities, moms and dads and children who don't know Jesus, bring them in. Bring them into this place of safety, to this place of salvation where you will meet them and rescue them. Do that, we pray. Prove to us that it's worth it. Change each of us. Don't leave us where we're at. We are exiles and sojourners on this earth, but we want to be different. We want to grow. We want to treasure you, Jesus. We want to trust you. We want to say something to the world around us. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd bring this to pass and you would change all of us and through us, change this community and the world. We are not powerful enough to do that. We are ultimately insignificant, Jesus. But you've promised us you will be with us to the end of the age and all authority and power is invested in you. So we look to you and we trust you. God, you have promised us that there is a city coming and you are its designer. And while we await that day when full salvation will be known, take care of us and protect us, we pray. We pray these things in faith in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.